Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 222 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Michael Swanwick. His novels include the New York Times notable book The Iron Dragon's Daughter and the Nebula Award-winning Stations of the Tide. He's also won the World Fantasy and Theodore Sturgeon Awards and is the only author to garner five Hugo Awards in six years. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new short story collection, Not So Much Said the Cat, from Tachyon Publications. And now, here's our interview with Michael Swanwick. All right, so we're here with Michael Swanwick. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, and so your new book is a short story collection called Not So Much Said the Cat. So where did that title come from? <laughs> well, it came from originally people at Tachyon Publications. It just slapped the name The Dollar Horse on it. But that was the title when the story's inside it. And that story was also available in ebook form from Tor.com. So when they put up the, uh, the, 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 the site for pre-orders, that came up automatically. So it looked like you could get an e-copy of the entire collection, but you could only get that one story. So they needed to change the name really fast. The last uh, collection before this one was called uh, The Dog Said Bow Wow. So when they, my public, when my publishers went looking for, uh, for a new title, they went through the book and they found this line in a story called uh, A Fine Scarlet Wizard Gown. And it just seemed like a nice pairing. Mm. So does it does it fit the tone of the collection overall? You think? Um, I think so because it it tells you that you're in for something odd, and um, really, with my stories, you never get the same thing twice. So uh, there's really no way of assigning a theme or a specific tone to a collection. And this just lets you know that you're in for something you don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, well, like you said, I mean, your stories tend to be all just all over the place in terms of subject matter and style. But I have heard you say that you thought that this uh, is your first collection where it seems like all the stories were written by the same author. Could you say what you meant by that? Um, yeah, it the, the prose sounds the same to me. Uh, there's not much in here that's experimental. I've sort of matured into I would I would call it um a lean elegance in my prose. So to my ear they all they all sound like they're written by the same person. Yeah, no, and they definitely feel I mean you can tell that you've written a lot of short stories and you're very comfortable with the form and you're you're pushing it in different directions. I mean that all comes through very clearly in these stories. Well, the thing about short fiction is it doesn't really pay. It's it's uh, probably um, for the amount of time that I've put in on these stories, I probably have not earned back, even with the collection, um, minimum wage. <laughs> so you only do short fiction because you love the form. And I'm just mad about short fiction. I, I love the form. I love what it can do. Uh, I love the simplicity and the clarity and the power of short fiction. So... Um, Essentially, anytime you see a short fiction collection, the person who wrote that did it out of love for the form, and that's it. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I'm, I'm much more fond of short story collections than novels. I mean, I read and talk about both on the show, but really my heart is in short fiction because what I love about fantasy and science fiction is the the new, you know, things you've never thought of before, places you've never been before. And you get a lot more of that in short fiction. Every, you know, 10 or 20 pages, there's something completely new coming at you. Also, short fiction is where um, where new ideas enter into the field. And they don't do that so much at at um, at length. When William Gibson wrote Neuromancer, everybody was knocked out by that book and just amazed at the inventiveness of it, except for those who had been reading his short fiction already. And essentially, everything that was in Neuromancer was in um, Burning Chrome, the short story, in much tighter uh, uh, embryonic form. And I don't think he could have written Neuromancer if he hadn't written Burning Chrome first. Uh, you can't, it's really a bad idea to write something new at novel length because you don't know whether you can do it or not. But you can, you can risk a short story. And if it works in the short story, then you know you can take it to novel length. Right. Well, you talk about this in the intro to this book about just the economics of short fiction and how difficult it is, basically impossible it is to make a living doing it. And you say that uh, a friend of yours said to you a few years ago, remember when we were young and we used to spend months working on one short story? And you said, I, I didn't really have the heart to tell him that I, I still do that. <laughs> God knows it's true. And my friend doesn't write short fiction anymore because it's just not profitable. It's not worth his time. And his uh, novels are doing very well. But I really, really miss his short fiction because he was he was one of the best. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really sad. I mean, it's it's frustrating to me. I, I wish there was something that could be done to make short fiction more popular so that, you know, more people could devote time to doing it. Yeah, uh, a, a MacArthur short fiction grant or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If, any, if anyone from the MacArthur Foundation is listening to this, uh, I think that's a great idea. Um, well, so tell us a little bit. I mean, I thought the introduction to this was really interesting because you talk a little bit about your origin story as a writer. And one thing that really struck me is that you had this friendship early on with Gardner Dozois and Jack Dan. Could you just talk a little bit about how you met them and how that came about? Oh, goodness. Well, um, Gardner Dozois and, uh, and I were both living in Center City, Philadelphia. And uh, everybody who was young and bohemian met everybody else who was young and bohemian. Uh, so, uh, I, I became friends with, uh, his wife, Susan Casper. She was then his girlfriend. And, uh, Gardner was a little suspicious of me at first, really, because I was one of these people who's going to be a writer. But, uh, and, and like everybody who's going to be a writer, I let everybody know I was going to be <laughs> a writer. I talked about it incessantly. So he was continually had this, this, this apprehensive cringe that I was going to ask him to look at my terrible fiction. <laughs> but I didn't. And after like, oh, three years of this, he couldn't take it anymore. And he said, let me take a look at your terrible fiction. And I showed it to him and it was terrible. But then he proceeded to show me how to turn my terrible story into something uh, readable. And it changed my life. Right. And you talk about that in the introduction. You say that one night he just told you, was it how to end a story? I mean, what was it? Do you remember exactly what it was that made such a big impression on you? I was, I had been writing since age 16. So I had been um, writing for 12 years and I 
wrote all the time. I wrote constantly. I trashed my life to make sure that I didn't have any marketable skills. Hmm. And uh, I never managed to finish a story. And he went, he and Jack Dan one evening, uh, and Jack would come into town and we would get together and we'd just talk science fiction and they would plot out stories. They would plot out anthologies they were going to do and novels and such. Uh, just really a wonderful education for an unpublished writer to be able to listen to this. And they went over my story and they broke it apart and they told me what needed to happen for it to finish, to end. And they showed that to me and I could see it. I could see how it worked. And it was as if God had reached down out of the sky and flicked a switch in my brain. And from that moment on, I've always been able to finish a story. It's been enormous amounts of work sometimes, but it's never been impossible again. So it was just, uh, the first time that you, the first time that you do anything as a writer, it comes as a revelation and it gives you something. The first time that you write a really good sentence, the first time that you write a decent story, the first time that you publish something that changes everything. It teaches, it teaches you something and it makes you a better writer. Yeah, when you mentioned there was sort of a bohemian atmosphere in the intro, you described Gardner's apartment as cramped and cat infested. Like how many, how many cats are we talking about here? Well, he denies this. But, <laughs> um, at one time, I have to understand that he, he was a, a soft mark. Cats had, had, would show up on his doorstep in the rain and cry until he let them in and adopted them. So at one point he had two pregnant cats. And they had litters at the same time. And that was in addition to the other cats they had. So that there was, at its peak, there were 29 cats in a three-room apartment. Oh, <laughs> Nowadays, he'll tell you there was never more than three, but I was there. <laughs> and I mean, so you were just starting out. You said, and at what, what stage were Gardner and Jack at in their careers at that point? Well, they were both, um, they were both hot young writers. They were... Uh, they would have been around age 30 when I met them, somewhere around there. Uh, and they were, they were writing stories that got lots of attention and that were full of literary ambition and that made it onto the awards ballots. So they were, um, they were in a very, they were sort of, sort of, sort of at, at peak creativity. As time went by, they became better. Uh, their work became better. But there's an excitement there when you're young and you're full of ideas that just cannot be replicated in your maturity. Right. You say that you guys kind of had this assembly line process almost for writing stories where you would pass, pass each story from one to the next. Yeah. Um, we would sit around in the, when, when Jack came, we'd have these evenings just sitting in, in, in the apartment drinking Gardner's terrible cream sherry and talking and talking and talking. And one of the things we'd do is we'd, uh, we'd be throwing out ideas and making jokes and uh we came up with an idea we start talking over and then work it out work out the plot of the story all three of us coming up with ideas shifting it around until we had an entire plot and i would take it i would not, i would like write down notes everything that we had said and then i would take it back with me and uh the first time when my own writing stalled out as you know happens on a regular basis Instead of starting a new story, I would set to work on that story, just writing it out the way that we described it. And when I had an entire draft, 
I would send it to Jack Dan, and Jack would tear it apart and rebuild it and reshape it and rewrite it. And then he'd send it to Gardner, and Gardner would do the polish draft and put it all into one voice. So it all sounded like it was written by one writer. And those stories did very well. I mean, they were selling to places like uh, like uh, Playboy and Penthouse and <laughs> High Times. <laughs> um, we were selling to, to all the slick magazines at the time, so, which was a good thing to do because they paid a lot of money. There was one time the we were we were talking, and Gardner and Jack uh, were talking about three different anthologies we were going to put together. One was a about unicorns, one was about cats, one was about wizards. So I said, well, we should write a story about a unicorn and a cat and a wizard. And Gardner thought that this was a very uh, uh, very unartistic uh, idea, that we had no idea for it. And I said, well, my idea is that we could sell it each year in anthologies, so reprints, and, and then <laughs> make some more money. And Jack was, of course, very enthusiastic. He gets very enthusiastic about anything. He thought, this would be great art. And he and I started plotting out the story, and Gardner uh, could not help correcting us where we got it wrong. So we wrote another story the same way as the, as the other ones. That one did not sell to an expensive market, but it did sell to one of his, sold, sold to the Wizards anthology that they uh, put together as a, uh, a reprint of it sold. So I got a, a check for, it was like, for one third of a story to Penthouse and one third of a story to their uh, anthology. And it was like, one thousand and nine dollars, <laughs> <laughs> and the nine dollars. And I looked at that it was 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 for that that one story, and one thousand was for the other. I said, "This is a funny way to earn a living." Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned that sometimes stories will stall out on you, and I heard you say that your process these days is that you'll kind of have, I don't know, ten or twenty or more stories going all at once, and you'll kind of open them one at a time and see if anything starts flowing. I think that's a really interesting process. Oh yeah. Um, I've I've lost track of how many I have. Let's see. On the wall, um, I have some post-it notes here. So I have Frozen Worlds, The New Prometheus, uh, Cloud, City of Angels, uh, Shepherd Moons, uh, Dragon Slayer, Stab Story. Um, there's about a dozen here on on the uh, on the wall. I'm guessing stab story is a working title. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a terrible title for a story. <laughs> um, now that's that's so interesting. Okay, so why don't you talk about some of the stories in this uh, collection? These new stories. Um, I thought it was interesting. I wanted to start off talking about your story, Passage of Earth, because you say that you spent weeks poring over a dissection manual, and then you spent years. You say right uh, to come up with the ending for the story. I did. Uh, it it took uh, most of the <laughs> most of the story is uh, a careful description of uh, the dissection of an alien worm, and, uh, and I put a lot of work into actually inventing a uh, an, an 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 alien physiology and. Uh, deducting the psychology of the aliens from their, from their, the way that their bodies are put together and then working out how you would be able to do so, all this by dissecting this giant worm. And then when I got to the, to the, to the end of the dissection, uh, something happens. There's a radical change in tone of the story and going off into 
and into uh, kind of an adventure almost uh, story with an encounter with the living aliens. And I came up to the climax. I came up to the end and I could not figure out an ending for that. I, I could see a couple of obvious endings, but they'd been done before. And I didn't want to do a story somebody had done before, especially when that had cost me so much hard work. So I had to put back onto, onto the disc. <laughs> and then uh, every few months I would take it out and I would go to the ending and poke about it and play with it and find I still didn't have an ending. And then one day I just said, aha, here's what I do. And I wrote the ending and it was done. I mean, is that unusual for you to spend years working on one story? No, no. Um, I have one story which I began in 1973, and I still haven't finished it. I have another wow. story which is I, I wrote a story with William Gibson back in the in the early 80s uh, called Dogfight, and uh, we did uh, what it's called the hot typewriter method, which is you hold on to a story for a month, and during that month you can make any changes to it whatsoever. You can change the main character's gender. You can change the plot. You can change anything. And then at the end of the month, you send it to the other person. He has it for a month. You can make any changes or no changes, whatever he wants, sends it back. So there were things that I put into the story that Bill Gibson just took out and <laughs> sent it back to me. And I put that thing back in and send it to him. <laughs> and he would take, take it out again. And when the story was done, I had a number of things that he had taken out. And I, came up with a different idea for a story, and um, I started writing it. And it's a terrific story. It's uh, about one-third written, and I have not found the central plot of it yet. Uh, it's a story called Robot. and that's So that's uh, 20, 30, about 30, about 33 years uh, old, that story. And a couple of times I've given up on it, and I just took a look at it to say, to say goodbye, and it came to life again, and I started working on it, and it bombed out again. So someday that will be finished. Wow. Well, you mentioned that in Passage of Earth that there's this really like wild left-hand turn midway through the story. And there are a couple of pieces like that in this book. I mean, Goblin Lake was another one to me that felt that way, where it just went in completely unexpected direction to me midway through the story. And I was just wondering, is that something you do intentionally that you've gotten sort of you know, after writing so many stories, you really want to mix it up and not just do the conventional plot structure? Uh, well, both yes and no. A lot of the stories, the way that I begin a story is I'll come up with an image and I'll just start writing. I'll write an interesting beginning. And then, um, and then when I've got the world established, you know, in a, in a, in a, in the first page or two, um, I'm looking around for an actual story, for something interesting that will happen, for something, for something new and vital. And, uh, and then when I find the story, oftentimes the opening sends you off in one direction. You've got to go off in that direction for a while before you can make that left-hand turn. On the other hand, there are other stories like uh, uh, like Passage of Earth, where when I was writing the di when I began writing the dissection, I had no idea um, how it was going to come out, what was going to happen later on in the story. And uh, I came and when I made that left-hand turn there. That caught me entirely by surprise. Hmm. I mean, you say in the intro, too, that, you know, you've been writing so many stories for so many years, but that it was only recently that you really figured out how to write a series of stories and make them all work with each other. Could you say kind of what, you, what you've what you learned? 
Yeah, I think I can. Um, my the big problem with series stories for me is that my stories are very intense. So at the end of one of my my stories, the characters are not ready to come back for another story. <laughs> They're no condition to do that again. Uh, you know, Star Trek. You know, at the end of every Star Trek episode, the, the the dial gets set back to zero, and you're right where you were at the beginning. They're in a ship. They're traveling off to the universe, uh, and nobody's been changed by their adventures. And my adventures, they they change people. Uh, so I've actually come up with two solutions. One is for the Darger and Surplus stories. Darger and Surplus are con men in in uh, post utopian Europe, and they uh, they're they believe that they are good people who are having a wonderful time, and this is entirely deluded. Uh, but they believe this. So at the end of each episode, they're off for a new adventure. They're convinced they're going to become rich. They're convinced they're having a good time. They're not. They're, they're just self-delusional. Uh, but this allowed me to have their, have their adventures that don't change them, although they change the world around them. The other one is a series of Mongolian wizard stories, which is about um, a, an officer in a, a werewolf corps, uh, Hans Ritter. And he is, uh, uh, he is a very serious man. It's a sort of a, a magic war happening in Europe in a kind of a 19th century, uh, middle European kind of, kind of world, uh, where magic is real. And in that series of stories, there's an overall arc. So I've published seven of those stories so far. I think there'll be about 21 in all. And when you put them all together, they tell a story. So over the course of the series, he is changing. All of his adventures do affect him, and they, and they change him. Uh, but he is at the end of each story, he's ready for the next one because his sense of duty is so strong. He's having a, a terrible time, and he does not enjoy his his life or his world. Uh, but he knows what his duty is, so he goes on. Hmm. And so, did you know that whole arc when you wrote the first story? Did you have to write a couple stories to get a feel for the world, and then the the plot of the overall plot? sort of formed in your head? Well, the, the, um, uh, the, same, the same thing as, as with uh, Dargan Surplus Stories. I wrote one story, and then when it, the story was done, I said, I could write more, and then I thought about it. So when I started the second story, um, I had a good idea of the arc. And by the time I finished the third story, I knew what the arc was. Hmm, interesting. I mean, one of the stories you say in this book, you say a friend gave me a title and challenged me to write something for it. I was curious oh, which yes. story that was. That was uh, 3 a.m. in the Mesozoic Bar. <laughs> okay. And uh, I I thought, you know, writers almost never take ideas from other people because we generate so many of our own and we have the time to write so few of them. Um, but something about that title tickled me. And then I... I wrote a story where it was literally 3 a.m. in the Mesozoic. So I was, I was pleased with that. It was a, a nice, it was a nice little challenge to, to write something, uh, to write a decent story, uh, around what is basically a silly title. Well, and it's interesting too how that title does, to me at least, suggest the plot of the story. I mean, you know, you're in the Mesozoic and it's 3 a.m. and why are you up at 3 a.m.? Probably, you know, yeah, you probably you're in to... some sort of situation. Yeah, you've had too much to drink, and you're, you're and and you're making bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also, you say that um, one of the stories you say I penned a tragic romance that required the advice of a physicist to set up. Could you talk about that? 
Oh, yeah, that was um, The Woman Who Shook the World Tree. That was the late David Hartwell was the editor for that, and he had a, a very uh, evocative uh, story, uh, uh, cover painting by an artist named uh, uh, Palmentier, I believe. And he sent it around to a batch of uh, writers and challenged us to write stories about it. So I, and it showed a, a woman with her back turned, looking up in the sky, something that's sort of like a tree and sort of like tentacles and sort of like tornadoes in the sky, very ominous looking. And I looked at that picture for a long time and said, ah, I know why you don't see her face. So I wrote a story about a woman who, um, uh, is very homely. Uh, that's a minor aspect of the story, but she's also uh, a world-class genius. And to me, the, the 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 great joy of that story was imagining myself in the brain of somebody so much smarter than me. Um, and when I when I came up with the uh, with the uh, the idea for the story. I needed to work out an experiment demonstrating that time that time and causality did not exist. So I worked up an experiment, and then I said, well, I don't have any idea whether this will work or not. And I went to John Kramer, who's a science fiction writer and also a world-class physicist, and uh, asked, asked him if he would look at my experiment. He looked at my experiment, he laughed, and he said, you realize the experiment you set up could have been done in the uh, 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> so he basically reworked the experiment and, and used modern technology and modern concepts to do the same thing. Because huh. I thought the story, one thing I really liked about it was the the way it portrayed academia and the media and things like that felt very believable to me. Do you have experience in in those sorts of worlds? No, no, not really. I mean, like anybody else, you know, I wander in and out of academia occasionally. Um, I was thinking there, though, there's a central scene where, uh, where the, the media suddenly pop up. And I was thinking was, uh, Doris Lessing. When Doris Lessing, uh, won the Nobel Prize, she was off, you know, doing things. And so she comes back. There's a filming footage. You can see this. She comes back to her apartment and all these people with television cameras around. And she says, what's all this? And somebody says, you won the Nobel Prize. And she says, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, That's so great. That's so wonderful. It's a little, little mirror into her soul. She's going, win the damn Nobel Prize. And now I'm going to have to have to answer questions and fuss about this when all I really want to do is just sit down and write. And uh, so I, you know, that, that was a, a key to my character's personality too. It's just somebody who's really good at something and all she wants to do is do that thing. Doesn't want fame, doesn't want money, doesn't want any of that stuff. Just wants to be able to be left alone and do great work. Right. And it's not too often that scientists or writers are confronted with film crews, right? So uh, That's right. That's kind of a shock to the system. Yeah, it was, uh, that was a good story. I like that story a lot. Um, I like that story because I was able to give her a moment of happiness in there. And she was a character who deserved one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also want to ask you, there are some stories in here, like namely Pushkin, the American and libertarian Russia that are take place in Russia. I was just wondering if you could say what sort of experience or fascination you have with Russia. Um, well, some years back, I was invited to Russia to Aelita, the, the oldest Russian science fiction convention. 
and in Ekaterinburg, which is two time zones east of Moscow. It's actually in Asia, in Siberia. And there's something about Russia. When you're in Russia, you're just constantly theorizing about why Russia is like this, why Russians are like this. There's something that really is, that just speaks to the American soul about the Russian soul. Um, my, my theory, well, my analogy is that America and Russia are like uh, two brothers who were separated at birth, and one was given all the bad luck, and one was given all the good luck, but neither of them deserved it. <laughs> hmm. um, no, I, I, anybody who goes to Russia falls in love with it. Nobody can explain it. It's interesting. You know, when I was in college, I had a friend who went to Russia for a semester study abroad, and he said that everywhere he went, everyone would just look at him and say, oh, you're an American. And he would say, well, how, how do you know? And they would say, well, it's the look in your eyes. You don't seem defeated by life. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of it. But uh, but it's not it. The Russians aren't defeated. The Russians are are burdened, I think. They're, they, they're, they're not defeated, though. Well, I've heard that you're you're very you're very popular in Russia, right? I, I think that they've really was it the Iron Dragon's daughter or something really resonated with them. Apparently so. And a few months ago, they flew me out to Moscow for the weekend to receive the Grand Roscon Award, which uh, really knocked me out. Um. So I don't know. Russia and I discovered each other. Hmm. <laughs> so how much time now have you spent there? Oh goodness, maybe four visits. Not not as many as I would like. It's a very difficult well, Moscow in particular is a very difficult place to, to visit. Um because in Soviet times they had they had the, the, the metropole, they had the, the one hotel. And now a lot of people come in, so they built new hotels. But when you build new hotels, you don't build two star hotels first, you build five star hotels first. So uh, a cheap hotel room in Moscow can be $500 a night. So if you want to stay in Moscow, you've got to either sp uh, speak Russian or have a lot of money or have a friend on the ground. And luckily I had a friend on the ground who could help me to, uh, help me to rent a flat uh, in, in Moscow. Um, it's a, it's a strange, wonderful place changing all the time. Yeah. I mean, have you done a lot of, do you, if you've, you've gone there four times, you said, and do you do a lot of research on Russia to write these stories? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're the product of a, of, of a lot of thought, of a lot of thought. And, and uh, when I wrote uh, uh, Dancing with Bears, which is a darker and surplus novel, and it's set in Moscow. So, when I decided to write that, I realized I'd only spent in, in Moscow for four hours in my life, so I had to go back. And I, through friends, I was able to rent a flat, and I went to Moscow, and I stayed there for a couple of weeks. It's not long enough to write a serious novel about Moscow, but it's long enough to write a comic novel. Um, I stayed there long enough that I was, uh, felt comfortable to go out and deliberately get lost, knowing that I'd be able to find my way back. So... Um, I know Moscow a little bit, not as much as I'd like to. Yeah. Well, I meant, you mentioned that your stories have been very well received there. Do any particular responses that you've gotten from Russian fans or <laughs> critics or anything stand out in your mind? Oh, um, well, when I wrote Libertarian Russia, uh, when I was writing Libertarian Russia, I thought, 
uh, I thought, I need to know how you say libertarian Russia in Russian. And so I would write to my Russian friends and say, how to say this? And he said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's like, this is not possible. This is such a, you know, no such concept. They wouldn't tell me. Finally, I said, well, how do you say libertarian Detroit? And they said, oh, this is how you say it. <laughs> okay. And um, for that story, which is about uh, a young Russian in uh, uh, not far, not terribly far future, who really wants to be an American. He wants to be a cowboy. And he's often going across Siberia on his motorcycle. And uh, learn Siberia teaches him some hard lessons. And uh, I've had a lot of Russians uh, come up to me and say, what did you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just trying to figure out why America has cowboy movies and Russia doesn't, even though Siberia is a lot like the American West. I mean, did you mean that story to be making a some sort of political statement about libertarianism? No, no, no. Uh, I just thought um, a libertarian Russian is such a contradiction in terms, and I was trying to figure out why this was. What, what makes libertarianism possible in America, but impossible in Russia? And uh, I think the story addresses that. I'm don't think that I can say it in fewer words than the story takes up. Huh, interesting. Well, I mean, I also wanted to talk to you about your story from Babel's Fallen Glory, We Fled, which has this really interesting clash of cultures between the humans and the aliens, where the humans in the future have an information-based economy and the aliens have a trust-based economy. And I was just wondering if you could just talk about those ideas. Um, yes. I was – essentially, this is what remains of a, a novel that I began. and. Uh, and I spent a couple of years thinking about making notes about, and at the end of two years, I realized that I hadn't actually written anything. I didn't have any characters, didn't have any plot. So I ditched the novel very quickly, started work on something else. But the, um, the thought was that when you send uh, a generation ship off to another star, that you've got an entire economy there. And that economy is going to be very dependent on information it gets from Earth. They're going to need um, scientific data, new technology, things that, um, that nobody's going to give them for free. So they've got basically a, a killer capitalist system, except instead of being based on money, it's based on information. And they have a system such that is set up in such a way that very much like the, um, the critique of capitalism that Marx made, uh, where they're always getting further and further and further into debt. And the system guarantees that collectively n they will not be able to pull ahead. And they, 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 they're stuck in this situation and they understand it. And the aliens have exactly the same economy, except theirs is based on trust. And they believe that uh, theirs is a natural system. That, of course, you organize your society by who you trust and how. But since the trust has been basically monetized, uh, it can be manipulated. And uh, you, can have you can have trust recessions. You can <laughs> have a trust crash. Uh, in the same way that can happen with any economic system. And so, and one of these crashes happens to the aliens. And in the course of escaping from it, a human and an alien, 
get to know each other, and the alien gets to learn basically the basics of the economic system that it is involved in and doesn't understand. Right, and they have this this really interesting conversation where the human makes the point that all of these systems depend on growth. You know that you, that you know a, a capitalist system is inherently unstable because the workers are never going to get paid enough to buy the things that they're making because the factory has to make a profit. Right, if I understood yes. the argument right, and that that the information and trust based economies work the same way that they have to keep expanding, they have to keep you know bringing in new people because. I don't know. Could you talk about the, why? Do, why do they? Why does the trust-based economy and the information-based economy have to keep expanding in, the, in that same way? Oh, essentially, um, you build something; it's worth ten dollars. You get paid ten dollars for it. Um, that's kind of a of a feudal economy. You can shift the money around up and down, but that's that's basically how it works. But capitalism involves profit, <laughs> and uh, and so the Amount of, and so, so you have, oh, ten dollars. That's oh, the worker, you've got ten dollars worth of, of, uh, of product that the worker has done, but you need to sell that for twelve dollars in order to make that profit. But there's not twelve dollars in that, in that system. So there's basically two dollars in debt, which is disguised, which had this huge economic system that's all just numbers. But the debt comes, but the debt keeps increasing and increasing and increasing. And the only way it can be paid off is you have a, you have a crash, uh, uh, an industry crashes and then all the debt is written off. And then you go back to a system where there's enough, where the money and, and value match up again. Uh, it's been a while since I, I, I read the economics book. I really recommend, uh, nobody read in economics if you want to, if you want to lead a, a, a happy, beautiful <laughs> life. It's, uh, Seriously depressing. It's an entire science which is based on the fact that we have economic crashes and um, attempting to come up with a system whereby you can prevent this. Right. Well, but I think we've gotten to the point where we've expanded into all the markets on Earth that exist. And we're sort of starting to see that the planet Earth is kind of like a spaceship and it's a closed system as far as these things go. And if we send out generation ships, for example, those are also going to be closed systems. So do we need some sort of system that doesn't depend on growth uh, to fuel our future? Well, um, the last time they tried that, I believe, was that was the the communist system. And that that did not work out well in practice, I'm afraid. Uh, We... We probably need some new radical form of 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 of, of economics, um, but history says that it's that the, that if we get one, it's going to be a very bad time for the people involved, caught in the transition from one to the other. Right. I mean, do you have any preference among the trust-based economy versus the information-based economy versus any other sort of economy? No, I don't. I don't. I don't really have any solutions. I'm afraid. I just have a a clear view of the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's no, a tough problem for sure. Um, okay, so then another story I really want to talk to you about. It's called the She Wolf's Hidden Grin, and it's sort of a, a play on Gene Wolfe's story, the Fifth Head of Kerberos. Could you just talk about that story and why you came to write your own take on it? I was invited to be uh, part of a festschrift, a, a book in honor of Gene Wolfe, and. Uh, so you were invited to, uh, 
to work in one, one of his many fictional worlds. And he had a story uh, novella called The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which was astonishingly important to me. Uh, I read it when it first came out, and it just expanded my ambitions enormously. It showed me just how much could be done in a story. It's an extraordinary work. And so I wanted to honor Gene, and I wanted to honor the story in particular. And I did something which I couldn't have done if I'd just been writing uh, it uh, without the sanction of this book, which is I took the first page of his story, and I just reversed things. I kept almost all the words. I just turned uh, evening into morning, summer into winter, east into west, and I took his protagonist and his protagonist's brother and turned them into two girls. And I set out to do uh, a feminist version of Jean's story, which came out. I was very happy with it, partly because in order to write it, I had to study history very closely. So I got to learn quite a lot, which at my age doesn't happen <laughs> so much from an individual story. But as I said, this was a very rich one. And I came to the very end of the story and came up, the logic of the story was such that there was going to be this awful, depressing ending. And I looked at it and said, this is awful and depressing, but you can see it coming from a mile away. So I did another flip on that, and it turned it even more awful. <laughs> <laughs> but surprising. So it's a surprise ending there. Even no matter, no matter how bad you think things are going to be, it turns out they can be even worse. Right, and I love that novella so much. Could you just talk for people who haven't read it? Could you just talk a little bit about what the world is like? Oh, so Gene wrote uh, a world set on a. It's set on two planets, uh, Saint Cloud and Saint Crawl. The uh, hero of the of the one uh, of the novella. His father is a rich man. He's being raised by a robot. And it's a world that is metal poor, so they don't have a lot of machinery. But it's uh, got very high tech in terms of um, genetic engineering. So they engineer their own slaves. They can engineer people to be anything they want. And so it's a, a very rich and complex world. And literarily, it's very complex. If you're paying attention to it, there's a, a clue right at the beginning that the house the, the rich man owns is on 666 Salton Bank Road. And, of course, uh, 666 is the number of the beast. And this is Gene's uh, telling you that there are two levels to the story. On the one level, there's this rich colony world which is slowly failing, becoming less and less uh, – the, the birth rate is going down precipitously after so many generations, and nobody knows why. But on another level, it's all set in hell, which is why nobody in this story is at all nice to anybody else. And he managed to tell these two stories simultaneously. It's also a story about uh, the – uh, indigenous peoples, the Abos, were believed to be uh, extinct, but they're not. They've been, they're hiding, and they're hiding as human beings. So this is a story uh, also about colonization. It's a very, very, very rich story. Just there are so many, so many layers 
to it. And they were all, they're none of them accidental. They were all put in by Gene. They were all created and worked out and thought about. It's an, an amazing story. Yeah, just the, it's, it's the Veil's hypothesis in the story is just so powerful and fascinating to me. This idea that the, the Aborigines were shapeshifters and that in order to survive when human colonists came, they had to shapeshift into humans, uh, to, to blend in. But then they kind of forgot that they were aliens pretending to be humans. It's just so, I don't know, there's something just so eerie and beautiful about that. It's also, um, a comment on, uh, on, on colonialism. Colonialized people tend to, remake themselves as imitations of the colonizer. And they can even forget that that they're not Europeans, that they're South Americans or Africans, whatever it is they happen to be, and they can, they can end up denying their own cultures. So, uh, which is, you know, uh, an extension of the original crime. So, there, it's, it's not just a, a clever idea, Although, my God, it is clever. Uh, but it's also a meaningful idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I saw you say about the story that that you didn't know, I think, at the time that Gene was an engineer, but you probably could have guessed because of the wit and economy of his solutions to any number of technical problems. Do you, oh, do yes. you remember what you meant by that? Uh, I, I can't off the top of my head right now, but it shows all the way through. Gene's, Gene's work is always explaining to you how things work. And, or sometimes why they don't, which is the way an engineer thinks. In, uh, in one of the books of the Long Sun, he goes on a rhapsode about why bronze is superior to steel. As absolutely convincing. He's going, and he come away with it going, going, yes, of course, bronze is far superior to steel. And, and he realized he's an engineer. He's just talking about properties. <laughs> bronze is superior this way. Steel is superior in that way. In another way, Wood is superior to them both because it floats. That's <laughs> <laughs> just. I mean, you've actually said that you think that Gene Wolfe is the finest writer in the English language alive today. I am convinced of it. Uh, his writing is just so beautiful. If you look at, uh, oh, a little minor thing, like in the uh, in in uh, the Shadow of the Torturer, set on this far future Earth where the sun has grown old, and there's a Beach sand called chromium, which is made up of multicolored grains of glass from earlier civilizations. There are several points through that. He refers to the green moonlight. And, uh, and then halfway through the book, there's a reference to the forests of the moon. And then you stop and you realize he's not talking metaphorically there. He's never been talking metaphorically about the green moonlight. The moon has been terraformed. There are forests on it. <laughs> and the moon is now green. It was such a beautiful little touch. Uh, very few writers could have come up with that. Very few would have had the restraint to just put it there and let people find it or not as they will. He had uh, uh, Severian, the hero of that of that trilogy, uh, wears a, a Fuligen cloak. And Fuligen is a color that's blacker than black. Now that sounds very romantic and it sounds like a literary twist of, of phrase, but it's actually, if you, uh, I used to work in, in solar engineering, it's, uh, what he's referring to is what's called selective black. And selective black is blacker than black because it's also black in the infrared. So it absorbs more of the bandwidth than, 
mirror black. And he put that out, and he never explains it. It's just there for you to find or not, as you will. Right. And you were going to say, I think, too, about the multicolored sands, that it's the, the cities that so many people have walked on them that they've been reduced to, to sand. It's, 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 it's glass from previous civilizations. All those bottles, all the windows, just washed by the sea for millions of years until you have just glass sand. It's a, a beautiful, evocative image. And he's full of beautifully evocative and horrifying things. And he writes about them all exquisitely. He's uh, got really such a fine, fine prose line, very heavily influenced by Proust. So, uh, no, uh, nobody comes close to him. So when you're trying to do your own take on a Gene Wolfe story, that must be very difficult then. <laughs> it, it was very hard. It was very hard and very exciting and very satisfying. Uh, of course, writing writing an imitation of a particular story, uh, he had uh, laid down all the structure, done all the structural work. So I just had to work on the decoration, as it will. So it's just much easier than starting from scratch. And you said also that you were trying, sort of, trying to channel James Tiptree Jr. in this story. Did I say that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, you said, uh, I flipped the seasons, directions, and genders, and then proceeded to write the story as it might have been told by James Tiptree Jr. Oh, yeah. Tiptree had this astonishing pessimism about uh, human life, human fate, and, and about um, what it means to be a woman in a society like, like ours. Uh, and it's bracing. It's just very exciting to, to read. Uh, but my God, is is it dark? <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to do a dark story, uh, very much in uh, Tip Tree's uh, tradition. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I also just really wanted to ask you about, this is an older story, but it's one I read years ago and that it's really stuck in my mind and I really want to talk to you about it, but it's Radio Waves. Uh, I just love that story so much. Could you just talk a little bit about how you came up with that idea? Because it's, it's such a strange, unusual idea. Oh, I was... Um, I went to the corner one night to, to get a, uh, a carton of milk. And as I was walking, I was looking up at the uh, telephone lines, and I was imagining what it would be like to run upside down on the telephone wires. And by the time I'd gotten the carton of milk and, and brought it back, I had the first paragraph of the story. And over the next day or two, I got it up to a page and a half. And I was setting it all in my neighborhood, the Seven Sisters, which are... Uh, uh, a series of uh, uh, radio transmission towers uh, visible from my front door. And uh, they act as sort of a uh, a chorus, a comment on the action without actually making anything happen. Uh, their part of the neighborhood, I put in a careful description of my street and so on. And that's where it, that's where it, it hung for like two years because I had no idea what was going on. I figured out that the guy running upside down was dead. And then over the course of several years, I, um, I managed to create a very strange world, all very much, very evocative of my own neighborhood again, uh, where when you die, the world turns upside down, you fall off. But if there's metal between you and the sky, that will catch you. And if you're 
a fast thinker, then you can make a kind of a post-life for yourself, and you won't fall off into the infinite empty universe. So I created this world, and I created some people uh, to have some very complicated emotional problems. And uh, at one point, I had one of the characters climbing uh, down uh, uh, an electric line through my house, making uh, sardonic comments about me uh, along the way, watching television. <laughs> and uh, that one was one of the ones that took uh, several, several years to, to, to figure out because I didn't know what was happening or what the intention of it was. And then one day I realized that it was uh, a death-affirming story. Uh, when I was writing with Gardner and Jack, uh, something that, Gar that Jack in particular was very big on was this story to be life-affirming. And I looked at this story and said, this is not life-affirming, this is death-affirming. And when I saw that, that it was all about embracing death, then I saw the ending and I could write, and I could write it through to the end. Well, because someone pointed out to you, right, that this, this collection that that story was in, every single story was about mortality, and you hadn't been consciously aware of that? It was, uh, that was a period when I was writing that, I suddenly realized that I had, was working on three stories simultaneously, and in all of them, the protagonist was dead before the story began, <laughs> <laughs> and in different ways. And I said, wow, my hindbrain is sending me a message, and I have no idea what it is. <laughs> Uh, you're constantly writing and finding out afterwards that uh, uh, what you're up to. My first, I don't know, 10, 20 stories, I was talking to my wife, and she said, they're all about identity. And I said, wow, I had no idea. No idea, but it was absolutely true. And uh, that period there, I was apparently writing a lot about death. No idea why. No intention to write about death, but there it was. Huh. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I was also really curious about this. You say in um, your foreword, kind of, you say the MC, that you want to thank the MC Porter Endowment for the Arts for the best years of my life. I was just wondering, what could you talk about that? Marianne Catherine Porter is my, is my wife. Oh. <laughs> and, um, when I was doing the acknowledgments for my first novel, which is In the Drift, um, I thank the uh, the MC Porter Endowment for the Arts because um, at that time uh, she was certainly earning more money than I was. So it was there was a uh, there was a degree to which she was actually supporting me, and uh, so I was put in as a gentle little joke. And then I kept that in my acknowledgments and dedications, and. Uh, and then I got a, uh, a review of a book, and it was very positive, and it, and explained how I was able to write these Lapidarian works because I had financial support from uh, endowments and such. And I said, "Oh dear, <laughs> now I have to write a letter letter to the to the magazine complaining about a positive review." <laughs> I mean, he'd said really such he said lovely things about it, but I had to I was uh, but I had to to write to correct that. So since then, I've been um, very careful that when I thank the MC Porter Endowment for the Arts, uh, I make it clear that whoever this person is, it's not uh, an actual real endowment. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, so just kind of overall, what kind of responses have you been getting to this new book? Uh, Not so much said the cat. Um, the, the reviews, uh, have been astonishingly positive. I mean, there were some of them I would blush to quote to you. <laughs> uh, just overwhelming universally. Uh, uh, I've had several people say I was, say that I'm, I'm the best short fiction writer, uh, today. So, um, I'm astonished and happy. How about from readers or fan letters or anything? Have, have people had some like personal connections with any of the stories or anything like that? Um, well, all my friends like them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've gotten, I've gotten lots and lots and lots of positive response. I'm just, uh, I'm just uh, blown away. And, you know, I've, I, I've had a, a, a pretty good response over my career to my work. Uh, but this just amazes me. Well, no, it's, it's a terrific, terrific book. I really enjoyed all the stories in it. Um, and I guess just, uh, what, so what's next from you, Michael? Do you have any, like, what else? I guess you're working on about 40 short stories now, but uh, anything you want to um, identify in particular? Okay, well, I'm, I'm still working on the uh, Siberian Wizard stories. Uh, as soon as I have some free time, I'll write the next one. And the same with the Darger and Surplus stories. Uh, I have a lot of short fiction I want to write, but right now most of my energy goes, I'm writing a, a, a fantasy novel called The Iron Dragon's Mother. And essentially, about 20 years ago, I wrote a, a story called The Iron Dragon's Daughter. I was traveling to Pittsburgh with my wife, and we were talking about fantasy, and we were talking about steam, drag, steam uh, locomotives. And I made a joke about the Baldwin Steam Dragon Works, and she laughed and went down another mile and said, would you write that down for me? And that moment, that little joke turned into a novel about a girl who was stolen by the fairies and forced to work in a factory building dragons. So she escapes and her life gets worse. She is sent to high school. Terrible things happen to her. And uh, that was a very, that was probably the most popular novel I've ever written. And then about 10 years ago, uh, Somebody asked me for a dragon story for an anthology. I said, well, I'll think about it. And I thought about it. And this idea popped into my head, uh, set in the same world. And that became the Dragons of Babel. And when you have one fantasy book, it's, it's a novel. And when you have two fantasy books set in the same world, it's an unfinished trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> so they were both standalone books, but there's like, there's all this pressure psychic pressure that the universe gives you for a third volume. And in the first book, Jane Alderberry's problem was that she didn't belong in the world. She was stolen. She there's no way for her to find a place in 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 Fairy. She had to find her way back home to our world. In the second novel, Will Le Fay is the hero, and he does belong in his world, so his role was to find a place in it. And that's sort of thesis and antithesis, so you, I knew that the third book if I ever found it, it would be synthesis, but I had no idea how you do that, how you wrap up the whole thing, what the basic insight would be. And then recently I came up with the image of an old woman dying in a hospital. And as she's dying, she makes a, a leap trying to escape the world. And she's caught by one of the dragons that comes to our world to steal children's souls, which is how Jane ended up there. 
and she ends up inside the head of a young female dragon pilot. Now, so for the rest of the novel, um, Caitlin has this old woman inside her head, there to give her useful advice and criticize her taste in men. <laughs> so this novel is entirely about mothers and daughters. So, uh, which I think is a very interesting topic. Yeah, I heard you say that the title was originally going to be Mother of Dragons, and then George R. R. Martin <laughs> came along and kind of... Yes, yes. <laughs> that was a great title. <laughs> and I came up with it first. <laughs> uh, no, actually, he probably came up with it first. I have to... have to. Uh, it was there in his book, so that's okay. Uh, yeah, but, but when I, there, there came a day when I realized I could not use my favorite title because it was so well known by then. And that was a pretty bad moment. <laughs> <laughs> and so when, when, when can we look forward to that book? I'm hoping to finish it next spring. Fingers crossed. Um, I'm in, I'm never in control of the, the speed with which I write. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. And so unfortunately we're not in control of our time either. And we're all out of time for this episode. So I think I'm going to have to wrap things up there. And so we've been speaking with Michael Swanwick and this book again, it's called Not So Much Said the Cat. And so, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Michael Swanwick for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Neurojacked8 from Ireland, who writes, I always look forward to this podcast, essential for anyone who enjoys reading sci-fi. So big thanks again to Neurojacked8 for that great review. Special thanks as well to Rob Bono and Eric Haven, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you, so if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. <laughs>